Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hi, I'm Josh Winograd. I'm the Senior Director of Artistic Programs here at L.A. Opera, and it's a real pleasure for me to be able to sit down and talk with Dr. Stephen King, who is the Head of Vocal Instruction for the Domingo Colbernstein Young Artist Program here at L.A. Opera. So you live full-time in Houston, and you're um, on faculty at Rice University, and also the Head of Vocal Instruction at Houston Grand Opera for the studio. But that's not by far the only place you work. So could you talk us through a little bit about what your life is like starting in September and ending in August? Okay, well, uh, in September, of course, the, the university's in session, and I have my voice studio there, and then I, I teach on Monday and Tuesday afternoon. I teach a young artist at Houston Grand. Uh, that's every week during the academic year. And then I come to L.A. once a month, about uh, 10 times a season for three days. So we have about 30 days of uh, vocal instruction here, which is roughly the equivalent to what we do in Houston. It's just spread out right. in and in managed in a different way. Lessons three or four consecutive days in a month rather than once a week. Right. Um, and then I teach about uh, currently around 100 professional singers. So the people that you, some of the people you hire here in LA, people in Houston, people singing all over the world, a uh, handful of those people live in Houston. The rest work with my personal assistant, and we have an online calendar, and they come to Houston as our schedules mesh or don't mesh. Uh, when that's all over during the academic year, uh, so suffice it to say, most weeks I teach 35 to 40 hours one-on-one instruction. Uh, once we get past 35, I start to get pretty tired with other things going on, too. Uh, in the summer... I start my summer in Santa Fe teaching the young artists there at the opera. That usually lasts for about three weeks, and then I go to Aspen Music Festival, and I teach the eight-week session there. For the past 10 years or so, I've also gone to Ravinia in the middle of the summer and taught there, and a couple of other places, one in Germany, but probably not going to do that anymore and just try to manage Santa Fe and Aspen. And then we repeat the process. And then, and then September comes around. <laughs> September comes around. <laughs> So the recharging months are are in the high west, as they say. Right. What is different about what a young, and I don't mean young singer like, uh, um, you know, a teenager. I mean a singer on on the verge of a career. What do you think is different about what they can expect than like what you had when you were on the verge of your career as a singer? Well, I mean, my career certainly wasn't famous as a singer, but there were almost no young artist programs in 1982 when I went to graduate school, so we can name those on less than one hand, right. actual young artist training programs at that point. Houston Grand Opera would have been in existence for a very short time, and it was very, uh, not anything like it is today. Uh, the MET program would have been in existence, I believe. LA was not. No. Nope. Um, so you had, you had less than four or five real training programs for singers coming out of graduate school. Um, now, <clears throat> there are a number of programs, and I, th- I think of them in two ways. I think of the programs that offer real training, of which we include L.A., where there's a programmed instruction in singing, in drama, in languages, movement, acting, 
many levels of training. And then there are a number of young artist uh, programs and companies, or their their term is young artist program. But those singers are brought in and basically um, not given as much training, but pretty much thrown on stage, and and they learn by doing, yeah. uh, for better or for worse, right? So uh, if they're not getting any singing training, usually the singing is going to suffer. If they're not getting other kinds of training, they don't advance to the level. Um, and so it's become an economics thing. The opera company benefits in some way because you have these people you can use on stage that are generally less expensive than a professional artist. But if you're not also giving them the training, then you, then short-term thinking because are you going to hire that same person back in 10 years for your main stage or five years? Uh, the goal, I think, is to is to train them so that you bring them back to the opera house, which engenders a lot of goodwill with your audience, typically. And also with them, and you're doing a lot for the profession as a whole. Yeah. Uh, and we're just talking about America. We're not talking about European uh, ideas about training. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, I think that the um, idea that an opera singer has become somebody associated with an extremely nomadic, transient lifestyle is something that has increased and changed. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, James King and a million other names that are that are popping into my head of, of people that really, you know, made these major careers at prominently a house. Right. Um, or, and, you know, of course there was travel involved, but, but they weren't, they weren't, you know, one of the things you hear from singers now is that if you want to do this, it is at the expense of any permanency in any way, shape or form. Is, is that something you think is new? Is that, how is that affecting kind of how people are singing? Um, I, that's a really long answer. It's a really long question, but there's there's definitely unless people finish training in America and they go fast in in Europe primarily in Germany then it is nomadic uh, and there's there's not much idea of a home opera house um, except maybe at the Met in New York where there are definitely people who appear to be house singers they live in New York and they primarily sing at the Met and they they make a very nice living and they're not as nomadic as other people who are jetting the world. It's interesting that you brought up James King because that's the person I replaced at the University of Kentucky in 1989 <laughs> when he um, stopped teaching at the university. He spent one year, he took a church uh, directorship job and he spent one year working on his transition from being a baritone to certainly one of the most well-known Heldon tenors at that time. And then he promptly went to Germany and as you said became associated with a place, and that's how he made his mark. I think that's very hard to do now, um, or it's certainly the times have changed. Yeah, uh, the work is not maybe as extensive, and the number of opportunities for really there there are more well-trained singers who could sing than there are opportunities even in Germany. With are there two hundred opera houses or more in Germany? Yeah, there are a lot. Yeah, so. Um, it, the singer now has got to be pretty crafty mm -hmm. unless they're just so uh, amazingly unique. Yeah. If they're going to work and they, I tell them all that you're CEO of your own company and you better start thinking like that now and develop a business plan for how this is all going to go with your small team of advisors, your manager, 
the people probably who trained you in your young artist program uh, that it mentor you, your voice teacher, yeah. and perhaps a musical influence coach, and and develop a plan for how this is going to be. Yeah. So we all see it from the the side of none of them ever look the same. The the actual modality of how it works out, but it all looks the same in terms of people who are always getting better and singing better, and they're going to work because yeah. they're going to eliminate their competition eventually. Yeah, I've yeah I've always said you, you hear a lot of people talk in this industry about um, luck and and being in the right place at the right time, and everyone claims to know you know fifteen or twenty unbelievable world class singers who just never caught that break. And my experience has been that the people who have the talent and do the work get heard. I mean, it's not like the movie industry where there's just so many millions of people who want to immediately wake up one day and say, I'm now an actor with no ha- no degree, right. no training. You know, right. the competition in that industry, I believe it, that you kind of have to be at the right place at the right time and that there are really, really talented people who just never were. Right. But in opera, I think it's not quite so much. It's not. To me, it's not like that. It's, it's that the lucky ones are the ones who outwork everybody else that also have talent as opposed to the person with great charisma who shows up and might have a screen career because they look great on the screen and they learn how to act. This takes years to develop. Right. Uh, the difference in being a professional singer and a, and a concert pianist is the concert pianist started at five and spent the next 15 years of their life becoming a concert pianist. Most singers don't start until they're at least in college right. or beyond that. And we know some who started when they were in graduate school or beyond graduate school. And then they spend the next 10 years of their life training because that's the age at which you can train the voice. So they train from 20 to 30. Um, I believe the general director of this opera house famously trained himself at that, at that age to become what he's obviously become, which is the most iconic singer of our time. Um, you can't start training somebody. Now, there are a lot of experiences that go into being ready to train, musical experiences, life experiences, but, yeah, the harder I work, the luckier I get tends to be the rule. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about um, vocal technique. What was it about your experience that made you realize you could actually ask for something from a singer that resulted in better singing. I know that sounds very simple, but for example, there are many, many professional singers out there who could never teach a lesson to save their life. What is it about you that you understood how to ask for better singing and how to get it? Uh, I I think it's a unique set of circumstances and it it has to do with uh, sort of how you think. Um, Are you an analytical person? Uh, I believe a lot of singing, uh, the teaching of singing has to do with what I call listening under the hood. And if it actually comes down to vocal technique, it's like a mechanic in the old days who could listen to your car and say, you know, well, the sixth spark plug wire is not connected or is burned out. Now, these days, engines are much more complex and everything's computerized. but, But being able to listen under the hood and understand how the voice functions now we know how the voice works in every single way we know how respiration works the breath we know how phonation works what's happening in your throat the larynx 
and we know all there is to know about resonation, which is the acoustics of sound. So we know about the three parts of the voice from a science standpoint. The really famous, uh, we'll call it the Italian basic two schools of singing, the Lamperti school, which was completely empirical, which means, you know, it was worked out through, what, trial and error. And I think you've got to stay open to that. I try to stay open to every singer's different, and we need to have eight ways to try the same concept because they won't all understand the same semantics because they've already heard someone say, this is how you breathe. But is it is this is how you breathe, is that really based in the mechanics of the body? And then can I do that in a way that doesn't turn me into a, a singer bot or sort of a robot and still be a expressive musician, which to me is the whole point of technique. If I can't be emotionally expressive with it, then my technique is not good enough. Right, right. Someone, Richard Beto, um, uh, who is uh, now artistic administrator at Houston Grand Opera, but was um, kind of the head coach of the Young Artist Program when I was in that Young Artist Program in Houston, said to me once, um, you know, that technique and diction and all these things were only things you had to learn in order to be a complete artist, that too much kind of focus on them ended up resulting in a mechanical delivery yeah. and, and, and that really they were only tools for our use to be an artist. And um, um, as I sit on, as I sit on um, panels in uh, competitions and jury panels internationally, I hear a lot of European casting directors criticize people by saying they're too American. Yes. And what they mean is they are proficient and technical and excellent, but they're not delivering any kind of like expression of something, which, which if, you know, why'd you learn all those things if you didn't then apply them, apply them. Right. And that's, I think everyone acknowledges that the American singers as a whole are better trained to be vocally proficient because there's been such an explosion in technical understanding, scientific understanding. And I think in the modern world, it would be silly to ignore that. But if that's the goal, then you will not find singers for the professional stage. And so um, it's it's a balance, right? Right. Uh, and the, the other school of singing that's sort of acknowledged is the Manuel Garcia, who was the first person to look at his throat with a mirror on his balcony in Paris. He put a mirror down his throat and he saw, oh, this is how the voice works. Or he began to explore that. And so that was the beginning of modern vocal understanding where it wasn't just empirical or subjective. It began began to become actual um, true mechanics of singing. Now, some would argue that that's where things went off the rails. Because it, because it became too technical? It, because it became too technical, it evolved into a more technical thing than it needed to be. And some would say, well, no, we, we want the knowledge of everything about how it works. And, and there are definitely great artists who have both. They have the wisdom of both. Yeah. And there are definitely artists who don't really know what they're doing, but who sing and perform in an amazing way but who couldn't stand in a room and diagnose someone else's vocal problems to save their life because they don't have the understanding or the background in doing that. I think you only learn to teach by teaching. Mm. The, the students teach you, and my first students, I always felt sorry for them 
looking back on it, none of them were very talented, but that's where I, as your question was, that's where I began to develop a vocabulary for knowing how to ask people what was needed and how to find it. Yeah. Because if they're not willing to explore that, there's no right answer for every singer, then it's very hard to to maximize or, or get the best out of that singer. Yeah. Whether it's the sound or the legato line or the pitch of the voice or finding, as people would say, finding their true voice. Most people fake a voice to sing opera when they begin. And then that's the beginning of problems for most voice teachers is because they're not doing anything that's actually them. Right. And we all, as, as an audience, we all see that. We see what's actually not coming across or reading. And it's very hard in voice teaching, in, especially in America, to stay out of the way of that process and not have them thinking about whatever they've learned technically and to become uh, artists and performers. I mean, that, after all, that's really what they're up there for. But if, if you can't hear them, uh, no one's going to hire them, we've noticed. If they can't sing in tune, it get, becomes harder and harder to get hired. Or if they're vocally unreliable, they can't be rehired. Yeah. It's like athletics. It's like sports, professional sports. And if, and if you can't get off the bench, you're just not going to play the game. Right. Well, that's a that's a good point that I wanted to touch on as well. The athletics comparison, because there are people working with singers right now out there who are, by profession, sports psychologists, and um, they are bringing the whole kind of game mindset. You know, I don't even know the terminology, but the whole idea that that in order to do your best, you have to be psychologically ready for the game. Like the inner game, the yeah. inner game of tennis or the inner game of golf or the inner game of singing. Right. And so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about, I mean, I know that when you started teaching voice, you probably felt that your understanding of the technical side of it on a, on a physical level was, you know, um, increasing exponentially as you started teaching. You said, you know, you learn to teach by teaching. But I'm wondering, did you go into it knowing you were also going to basically be a therapist? (laughs) No. No, I had no idea. Because I wasn't working with people who sang on stages all over the world. Um, And so that's why you have to approach every singer differently. And I think the ones you're most successful with is you find a conversation between each other where you really are communicating on a very deep level. And it sometimes it's not technical, but it's helping them process what they're hearing other people say. And um, if that's what you mean by being a therapist. Well, yeah, and what I mean is, you know, you and I have both seen so many examples of people with unbelievable talent who crashed and burned because they could not, this is a phrase that I use sometimes, they just couldn't get out of their own way, Right. you know? and. Um, and whether whether that means in some cases it means they weren't able to relinquish the control to somebody to actually teach them, they weren't able to um, find a level of trust with people who were guiding them right. Yeah. So they so they combated it, they fought it every step of the way. Um, and that or, may be the operative thing is that that they trust whoever's in front of them, and you you gain that over time or not. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, or or conversely, they were so desperate for um, approval that they trusted everybody, thinking it would ingratiate them, and then it ended up derailing. But I wonder, you know, you said you have to 
come up with eight ways to maybe get the same thing from somebody on a technical level. Um, and I'm wondering, do you also feel like starting to understand your students on their own, where, meeting them where they are psychologically isn't important? It's a key. It, I think the older I've gotten, because this is my 30th year of teaching, which is bizarre, but because I never planned to do it, but the older I've gotten, the more I, what I realize is, is I have to really listen to them, not, not their voice, but what they're really saying mm. to, to find that entry point. And one of those eight ways may, may just be uh, personal advice, or it, it may be nothing related to technique, but everything related to the character of the music and what is the music really telling us, which ultimately is what we're trying to do. Is to is to be a vessel for the music, and when we get in the way of that, everybody knows that on some level, even if they don't know anything about singing, because nothing's happening in the room that excites us or moves us, or causes us to listen. That's my biggest thing about going to opera, because I, I sit in a lot of dark theaters at night and I listen to people sing, and if if I I find that if I lose interest. It's not always the voice that's causing me to lose interest, but when I lose interest, then I start listening to the flaws which are inherent in every voice, and then I might as well go home. Yeah. Because I'm not enjoying the process of watching people perform or, or the whole of that makes opera great. You, yeah. You have the, the dramatic side, and you have the orchestra side, and you have the singing side, and all the other things that go into opera that make it a completely unique form. So in that regard, um, you know, since your time with the students is really in the context of good singing, which as we discussed, has a psychological component, has an expression component, has an understanding of, of, of vocal technique, both from a contemporary, I mean, from a scientific perspective, but also a historical, all these things, but you aren't teaching them acting technique, you aren't teaching them, um, you know, music history, you aren't teaching, what are the other important things that stand out to you is that they need to be getting other than their hour in a room with you? Well, there's the language component. And since most of our time is spent singing things other than English, that is always woven into the vocal technique. How does saying this word affect sound? For the better or worse. Um, that's always a big component because we can't ignore that because of the acoustics of sounds that we make. People are, are in effect screaming with technique across a large space, across an orchestra, and, it, and to be believable, that takes a lot of training. Mm. And it's not for everybody, you know. And it's the only art form that I know of that people are asked to do that. You don't do that on Broadway. You don't have a microphone. Right. Um, and in the modern culture, our ears are heavily <clears throat> skewed away from live, unamplified sounds. And so getting people in that mindset to begin with is probably quite different than it would have been 100 years ago, I would have to think. Right. So I wanted to end um, by just asking, is there, uh, without naming names, uh, a kind of like amazing success story that sticks with you as your, your kind of career favorite? Or is, or is, that, uh, is it too hard to, to do that without disclosing who we're talking about? That would be really hard because there have been, 
you know, when I really look back over the past, mostly the past 20 years, when I've been in contact with people of real talent, I mean, that's the thing. I've always said this, there are no great teachers. There are really great, talented people. And the association makes everyone think, well, that's a great teacher. And over time, if that teacher doesn't figure out how to get better, then that title just falls away (laughs) really quickly, right? Because you just keep getting better. The stakes just keep getting higher and you keep trying to raise your game. Um, It's hard to say because there have been some, I mean, one that we had here that that everyone will know is, is Nick Brownlee, Nicholas Brownlee, who I heard, I was judging a competition and I heard him and I thought, this is this is a major talent. He has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> and we need to, he, he grew up coincidentally in the same state as me in what we call LA, which is not in California, but it's in lower Alabama. <laughs> near the, in Southern Alabama, we call it LA. And so we found him in, in LA and I got him to come to Rice University and, you know, within two years, everybody knew about this kid, Nicholas Brownlee. Uh, and, you know, you just can't teach that. It's like uh, if we go to the professional sports team that has this, you know, amazing athlete. Uh, no one taught LeBron James how to be LeBron James. He has a gift and a talent and obviously a physical endowment. And Nicholas Brownlee has all those things, too. Right. And obviously, he's, he's came to the young, ended up coming to the Young Artist Program here in L.A. and he's having a career. He's singing in Germany and other places, and he's a, a very young, most of us think, a long-term major singer in this business world. Yeah, it's very gratifying when that happens, isn't it? It really is. And, and we, we, I think, we've been really lucky at uh, the Domingo Colbernstein Young Artist Program here because I think we, um, in only. 11 years of existence, I think we have a huge number of people that we feel that strongly about, which is, which is pretty amazing considering all the other major young artist programs have been around for four decades, four decades. And we've been, we've had more than our fair share of people that the audience here is hearing now on a regular basis. Yeah. And other major opera companies are hearing on a regular basis. We've had more than our fair share of people come through here that, no one knew about or they weren't on anyone's radar right well a lot of that is very much thanks to you and so i wanted to uh again thank you for sitting down and chatting with me thank you and this has been a real pleasure my pleasure thanks so much you've been listening to la opera's behind the curtain thanks and see you at the opera If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.